Welcome to Mike the Mike. I'm Michael Beck, the host of this podcast. If you've been following along with me, it's great to have you back here again. And if you're listening in for the first time, welcome. This podcast is a safe place to talk about disability, such as mental and chronic illness, as well as the arts and entertainment. Sometimes I talk more about disability, sometimes more about arts and entertainment, but regardless of the topic, I hope to encourage greater openness and understanding as I seek to better understand myself and the things and people around me. And so this is my first episode uh, back flying solo since my last two episodes where I had the privilege of talking with my good friends, uh, Silas Hahn and Stephanie Mulla. So I want to thank them again for being on this podcast with me. And I hope that if you tuned into those that you enjoyed them. And if you haven't uh, already, I just encourage you to go and uh, listen to those. So I'm calling this episode my Chamber of Reflection, and I'll be sharing a few of the things I've been learning since 2020 until now. And I assure you that none of them are related to the pandemic. That just happened to be the time when I began making a running list of one to two sentence statements, uh, which I feel capture the essence of what I learned. And I titled uh, that list, uh, Thoughts Worth Remembering. At least for me, I find that it's all too easy to have an experience, come away from it lear learning something, and really, you know, really important to my personal growth and development, and then later neglect to recall and act on it. So in a way, I guess I'm sort of reflecting on my reflections. I'm still learning these things. Much of the reason I find these things so important is that they're all major realizations that change my old ways of thinking. And in this way, as we've discussed, like moving a large ship, it takes time to unlearn old habits and to make course corrections. So here's how it's going to go. I'll, I'll share a statement that I wrote and then recount the experience which inspired them. Perhaps you'll take a statement or two and run with it. More power to you if you can grasp any of these concepts uh, quicker than I'm able. Again, I'm still trying to take these things to heart myself. So the first statement I want to remember is, sometimes deer run out onto the road with no time to react. You may hit it, but it's not your fault. So I was raised uh, by two process improvers. The perception I got was that they uh, were always looking to find ways to do something better the second time. And the implication that I learned was that in hindsight, you can analyze yourself in the situation. And if you think about it enough, you can figure out where things went wrong. And if you encountered the situation again and did it differently this time, you can achieve a more positive outcome. I think that sounds pretty good. And in of itself, it can be good and helpful to have a critical mind to be someone who can look to make improvements and to, you know, learn from, you know, your mistakes potentially. Um, you know, what employer doesn't love that? But uh, what I missed is that sometimes there are things that are out of your control. There are circumstances that you can't predict. And here's the real kicker. Sometimes unfortunate things happen and it's not your fault. Not everything is your mistake. Sometimes bad or less to ideal things happen. They can, you know, they are thrust upon us and it's, you know, it's not because we did anything wrong and there's little to nothing that we can do to make it, you know, less of a sucky situation. So one morning driving to work and out of nowhere, a deer just nonchalantly walked onto the road. Its mother hadn't told it to look both ways before crossing the road, apparently. Fortunately, I was only driving down this road at like tops 40 miles per hour. Um, so I do see it and I slam on my brakes, but I give it a good whack with the front of my car. 
The deer gets thrown off to the side of the road and topples over, but I see it fumble back onto its feet. It appears that the deer made it out okay. Fortunately, there wasn't anyone driving close behind me when I slammed on my brakes, and I didn't see any damage to my car later when I inspected it. It looked like everything turned out fine, but it was still very shocking, and I still felt bad that the incident had occurred. I never want to hurt anything, even if it is a foolish old deer. My initial response was to blame myself, even though I knew it really wasn't. I kept playing over the situation in my mind and, and kept trying to think how I could have you know, avoided the situation or how I could do it differently next time. Here's hoping there's not a next time, at least not anytime soon, but fortunately I was able to come to the realization that what happened wasn't my fault and there's nothing that I could have done any differently. There are times that things come at you with little to no time to react, and this was one of those instances. And under the circumstances, I did well, and I'm, you know, I'm actually proud of myself. The second is you're not always right, and you're not always wrong. You have important things to say, and your thoughts matter. Uh, language has been a struggle for me, particularly when growing up. I would hear people say things, but I wouldn't hear them correctly, and I would try to make inferences like if I heard a new word such as a name and it sounded like another word that I already knew rather than understanding and grasping the new name I would just hear that name that I already knew and I you know I repeat it and you know they would say you know that's that's uh that's not right <laughs> you know, that's not what their name is you know uh, uh, just uh, one other example um or particularly that stood out to me was uh, in elementary school, there was a discussion about burns, and I couldn't tell you why this was elementary school discussions, but the person said something about a third-degree burn, and it was the most burn that you could get, and I suppose I heard about this before, likely from my parents, but what I heard from my parents was not uh, uh, was not third, but 30, and so I was convinced. I got into my, got into a little bit of an argument with him about it, and was even like, I would know my parents are nurses. Uh, later that day, after school, I got home and went to my parents to tell them about it, and they told me that my friend was right. And I felt so deflated. I thought for sure that I had heard correctly and uh, that I was correct, but I hadn't. This was just, again, just a standout moment that I can remember, but there were other instances like this. And over time, I lost a lot of confidence in myself and the things that I believed and the things that I would share. What I became was far from a know-it-all. I would give people the benefit of the doubt, and I would no longer make assumptions that my facts were correct. That wasn't all bad. I wasn't arrogant. I got into far fewer arguments, but I also shared my thoughts much less. Surely there's someone else who will prove me wrong. Maybe it's not worth sharing. But I have to give myself more credit than that. Sure, I'm not always going to be right, and there are plenty of things that I can learn. But I'm not all wrong either. There are things that I know and I do have good ideas that are worth sharing, whether people choose to acknowledge them or not. The third statement is, people can't know you if you won't share your thoughts with them. Uh, this and the last statement kind of go hand in hand, but uh, while the last statement deals with confidence, my ideas that I have, uh, this has more to do with my confidence in myself. Over time, I found that I became quite passive. I was very much about pleasing those around me and avoiding confrontation. I acknowledge that for the most part, 
people don't like concentration, but I believe I was going well out of my way to eliminate any harsh edges or standouts about me that might cause any friction with others. In order to achieve a state of security, I felt that I needed to win people over and appeal to their good graces because I may find myself in a situation in which I needed help and can't do alone by myself. I guess I figure don't offend the help. Who will come to my aid if I haven't first demonstrated my value to others? Uh, <laughs> make yourself invaluable so others will be inclined to be there for you later when you need it. Now, I recognize that there are some uh, major flaws within that line of thinking, but I digress. As a young person, I wanted to be known, but for the sake of my survival, I thought it more important to be liked. But as I got older and started to realize how unrealistic and unhealthy it was to try and get along with everyone, and I realized much of my attempts to win people over were in vain. Maybe people liked me well enough, but I often found that my friends weren't really there for me when I felt that I needed them most. The times that I thought I could count on them, the times when I thought this is what best friends are for. Maybe people liked me well enough, but I felt like there was a lack of deeper connection. I felt that they didn't really know me and I didn't really know them. And maybe people liked me well enough, but maybe I didn't really like them that much. Maybe there's a no deeper connection. Maybe they never have the time to spend quality time with me. Maybe there's a lot of talk. They like to throw out their easy one-liners of flattery, but it's only words. They never show in any more meaningful way that they see my worth and that I matter to them. Not that they need uh, me, uh, but that they generally desire to have me around because in some way I add value to their life. You know, if I wasn't around, would they take notice? Would they care enough to reach out to me to let me know that I was missed? The fourth statement is you can't constructively process and react to what life throws at you while you're rushing out the door. Having a good and consistent morning routine is something of a challenge for me. All it takes is a small change or even a bigger one like daily savings to throw me off. I'm not a morning person. My natural internal clock does not have me getting up anytime before 8.30. I don't even do breakfast particularly well because I'm generally not hungry in the morning. And in times past, if I would eat breakfast, it's like my body would reject it and I would be sick to my stomach. But most things require you to get up early in the morning. My inclination is to get as many hours of sleep as, as I can in the morning and give myself just enough time to get up, get ready and rush out the door. But I realize that that's no way to start a morning on a, even a good day. But inevitably, as, as we mentioned, things occur and things happen out of our control, things we can't predict. And on one particular morning, I uh, didn't sleep in. I got up early and I spent to, you know about like 10 minutes uh, reading my Bible and then say about five minutes uh, of meditation. And I feel like I need to uh, preface uh, what I mean when I say meditate. And for me, when I meditate, it's giving myself uh, permission to be awake and to not have to do anything. So for five minutes, uh, or however long I, I would give myself, uh, again, I don't have to do anything for anyone. I don't have to think about anyone. I don't have to concern myself or think about anything. I try to clear my mind, but I try to also acknowledge the thoughts as they rise and, and let them pass. It's a practice 
I'm not saying it's easy or that I always feel successful, but you know, that's, that sort of defeats the point. It's not something to achieve. It's just an opportunity. And I find that when I give myself this opportunity in the morning, it, uh, it does help ease my anxiety and put a damper on my impulse to hurry. And it helps me to acknowledge and make room for my thoughts rather than simply trying to push them away. Again, on this morning, as has been my custom, I prepare my lunch, which includes an English muffin with ham and American cheese. I have this every day for lunch, and there's no other alternative prepared. So if I don't have my English muffin, I don't have my lunch. And I have been trying uh, to be diligent with my diet, so I don't uh, deviate from it Monday through Thursday. And so I went into the pantry, and there was no English muffins. Where were the English muffins? Again, fortunately, I had given myself some extra time this morning, so I encountered this, and I had some time to think. I thought my parents uh, must have eaten them, so I called up my mom, and fortunately, she answered, and it turned out that they had eaten them. Uh, there was some misunderstanding the day before, and they didn't realize uh, they were my English muffins. Um, my mom felt really bad, and um, you know I was still really upset, but I was able to process it, and then I could conclude that um, you know I would just pick up some Wendy's that day, and although it wasn't ideal, it it would be okay. Having the time to solve the mystery of the missing English muffin, and then having time to process this news uh, without the added complication of being uh, under a time crunch was a major blessing. This is just one example, and it's specific to the morning, but we live in such a, a hurry-go-go society, and yet we're supposed to still think critically and work productively. But I argue, how can we truly comprehend anything and work well while we're rushing, while we're multitasking? And I don't know if you're aware, but I learned that there's no such thing as true multitasking. Multiple studies have shown this. We can't think about and do two things at once. What we actually do when we're multitasking has actually become referred to as task switching or task swapping. I won't go too much into it, but I will say this. Uh, there's clear evidence that there is a cost every time we bounce between tasks, and there's a residual negative effect even after we move on to a new task. So the question then becomes, how can I slow down and prioritize and focus my attention? There's a broader social issue, but it's much bigger than myself. So the question is, uh, what's within my control to change uh, that will help me to slow down and help me uh, to split my attention less? A good morning routine and meditation is one thing, uh, but that's just the beginning. There's actually a book by John Mark Comer titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, which I intend to, to read, hopefully, sometime soon. All right, so the fifth and final statement on my list of thoughts worth remembering thus far is uh, there is no best option. You just have to pick something and appreciate the experience, accepting the consequences, both the good and the bad. I'll have another episode where I talk about photography and go more in depth into uh, the camera that I have. Uh, but for the sake of this episode, as it relates to the statement I just mentioned, I recently purchased a new camera and I found a Deciding on a new camera, very challenging. And uh, after I made the decision, I had to live with it and wonder if I had made the right choice. I've been learning to appreciate my new camera, but it's not like it was everything I hoped for more. And it's not even everything that I hoped for. Uh, but I have, you know, I would have known way of knowing. 
And who's to say that another camera would have been better than the one that I chose? You can't learn from the experiences that you never have. And not all experiences are ideal, but each experience is a new and unique opportunity to learn from. So in the case of my camera, I, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of features on it that I don't need. And there are video features that I have little to no interest in using. And I learned that the camera is larger and heavier than I was expecting. I'm hesitant to turn right around and try to get another camera, but whenever I do make the exchange, I believe these insights will be helpful for me to make a more educated decision. And I would never have gained these insights if I hadn't made the decision and given the camera a shot. And in the meantime, even as I'm getting used to the camera I have, I'm getting familiar with the menu system of the brand of camera, and I have a pretty good lens that I can mount on another camera of that brand as well. As it relates to this discussion, and living with outcomes, I'll share a theory that I had uh, rather than trying to make it into a separate episode. I think most people are familiar with the concept of pessimist, optimist, and realist, different ways that people perceive the world around them. You know the pessimist sees the world with a half glass empty, the optimist sees it half glass full, and I suppose in this uh, analogy, the realist uh, just sees the glass of water, I suppose. Uh, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring and say there's another way of perceiving the world that people aren't talking about, and that's the idealist. They're the dreamers pining for the way things could be. They may mistake themselves for a realist. They know they're not an optimist, and they're too hopeful to be a pessimist. However, when they're in an unhealthy place, there's a palpable air of cynicism about them, so much so that they may even be labeled as a pessimist but the idealist is merely in a state of flux between fantasizing and disappointment. If given a glass of water, they will expect a full glass of water or more likely some sparkling water, or coffee or soda. If you're into those sorts of things, uh, they'll have this grand idea of what it could be and be disappointed when they realize it's only a half glass of water. Even a, a full glass uh, enough for the optimists fall short of the idealist's hopes and dreams. What then is the point of growth for the idealist? Their ability to dream is one of their greatest gifts, but it's also their greatest source of disappointment. The idealist shouldn't stop dreaming, but they will find it beneficial to work on not letting their dreams cloud their expectations. They need to learn the, that most outcomes are rarely all bad or good. No matter what happens, they can learn to appreciate it, acknowledging what is less than ideal but finding gratitude and what is good. They should seek to look for what is present rather than keeping their focus on what is missing. This is a work that they must do internally as well as externally. And they may find that the more that they can extend grace to themselves and value what's present in themselves, it will become easier to do the same thing externally as well. And so I find myself identifying as a idealist and this is what I'm challenged with working on. Back to the camera purchase, um, it's as if I was searching for a unicorn, a pie in the sky. There is no perfect camera, and there is no perfect uh, most anything. I'm uh, trying to learn to be more comfortable with compromise and to figure out what my, you know, my true priorities are and focus in on those rather than concerning myself with checking off all the possible boxes, all the features, all the best outcomes. So I may experience this to an extreme, but I imagine most people experience idealism uh, to some varying degree. So maybe my sharing uh, this will be helpful for you and maybe we can work on growing in this area together.
Well, I think that uh, does it for this episode and this uh, segment of my chamber of reflection. Perhaps a year from now, I'll have some more things uh, learned that I've saved to my list of uh, thoughts worth remembering. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments or have any thoughts on what you'd like me to discuss in the future, you can email me at beckm1911 at gmail.com. And you can also connect with me on Instagram over at Lancaster Band, Lancaster with a K, or beckm.creative. You can find all those addresses I mentioned, as well as any citations for this episode listed in the description. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay well and take care.